the one thing I was going to ask you, yeah. you were talking about like your choice to like professionally what you were going to do, whether you were going to go to the NBA yeah. or whether you were, I think it was like solar energy. I'm just, I, I think I, I, like I've been reading the mindfulness stuff and that to me is like what mindfulness is about, you know, taking that pause totally. and just re recognizing that you do have multiple choices and some people get so yeah. caught up, man. They've been in basketball for so long and it's like, this is the only choice I have. I need to coach right. or I need to continue to play. Yep. So I'm just interested yep. just, dude, what was your process like? Just take me mm -hmm. through it, man. Yeah, I mean, there, well, there were a few, there were a few factors. Um, so one is, so we all got, we all got fired at Stanford, right? And the way the timing shook out was less than ideal, but I did have a couple options in college at the time. Um, I was in a position, I, I was only 22 when, after Stanford, I was 20 when I started there. And I was in a position where if I stayed in college, if I took like a director of basketball operations role somewhere, I'd have actually had less basketball responsibility. And anyone who knows me well knows I, I just don't care about scheduling or operational stuff. So, so I did try for some stuff in the NBA and I, I finished runner up for like nine jobs in, in a year and a half or something like that. Nine jobs. I have a list somewhere. And like the GM would call me and be like, we love you, but we love you. But, and eventually what I, I realized was that I'm someone who I think it is important to, to have this balance between an internal locus of control and also under, I mean, I'm, I'm a Christian, so understanding that God has a plan too. And so I was in a position where I felt that the internal, that the locus of control I wanted regarding the world around me, I wasn't potentially going to be able to have in basketball. If, if I wanted to work in the NBA or maybe the Euro league to work at the level I wanted to, um, there are, you know, there are 30 NBA teams. And so I would be leaving the next 60 years of my life up to the whims of more or less 30 people. And that wasn't a situation long-term that I became super comfortable uh, because what you have then is you have 30 people, you know, maybe 60, if we say I could have gone the front office route as well, that can hire you. And, and, and of those, you put yourself into a bit of a zero sum status game, right? If, 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 I'm trying to, if RC Buford hires John to be his GM, he cannot also hire Jared to be his GM, right? And so the, the secondary thing is that you get a lot of crazy weird status games when you're trying to play at that level. And I just don't like to play those. And so, you know, it just ultimately became a decision of the ability to own my own fate, which no one can do. As a Christian, I would say God is in control. Things happen, right? I mean, I could still end up penniless on the street tomorrow and for sure. Um, but the ability to have more of an impact on the outcome was what was what ultimately led me away from basketball. I, I just love it as a thing, right? Like I don't need the identity of a basketball coach to function. Yeah. Dude, I love that, man. I love like that's been like one of the themes in my life that I've kind of been playing with this mm -hmm. whole idea of games. Like which games do I want to play? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> totally. play status games because those, like you said, like there's so much out of your hands um and there's so much time and energy that's in my opinion yep. that's been wasted when i can be doing so much so many <laughs> exactly. other great things you know so i feel that man that i feel that with my heart and i think so many coaches are struggling with that now mm -hmm. there is like in anything you do john there is a level of status game you have to play and the reason for that is if we all knew who each other really truly was which takes years I, there's people I grew up with. I still don't 
truly know who they are. If we all knew exactly how good John was, and this is fluid too, right? Like you might right. be this good one day and this good in a year later. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have to do any of these things. But until that happens, status and signaling does matter. And there's different ways of doing it, but you have to learn to signal a certain level of intelligence, certain level of thought. And if you have all those things, but you have no interest in signaling them, like you can never get ahead. But, but it creates this weird paradigm where if all you do is constantly signal, you lose all your substance. Mm. And that's a constant game that we all have to play because if we never signal, nobody knows who we are. Right. Yeah, finding that balance, I think. Like just continue, like essentially you're saying like continue to get better. I still need to kind of play it. I need to, you know, get to, like I need to get to know people. I need to be connected, but it's not like the most important thing. What do you think the most important thing is? In what context? In terms of like just, like just you know, doing what's important to you, like, like figuring out your values and, um, mm. Because I, I think, like, ultimately, I guess with this question, is there's a lot of clutter and there's a lot of stuff that's being thrown at you. Yep. A lot of information, yep. a lot of stuff you can take in. And it's like, yep. sometimes it gets overwhelming, man. And we got to just kind of lean oh. back and say, you know, what is it? You know, what, what are we really focusing our time and energy on? Yeah, so I, I'm optimizing for two things, um, personally. So one is I want to do things that align with my values. Um, and number two is I want to have a non-fungible aspect on the world. So what that means, or a non-fungible impact, excuse me, on the world. What that means is that if I'm doing something today where if I walk outside and a snowplow hits me right now and I die, like I want there to be a hole in the world. Because there's tons of people that are just as talented as me or just as talented as you or just as talented as anyone else, right? Like, but but like there's a guy named Samo, Samo Berja. I, I, I think I've met him once in SF. He's awesome. He's from like Slovenia. And he, 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 he's done this thing, which is probably the most important sociological thing I've seen in like 10 years. Not that that's a high bar, which is that there's a difference between live players and dead players. Uh, the ultimate example of a live player is Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? And so if you think as a dead player, of a dead player, they always operate within the framework. They follow the steps, the hierarchies you're supposed to do, but that can never change the system or never achieve outside, right? And, and Arnold, and this is his example, this isn't mine, is a, the total live player. He's like, I'm going ha- to hack or like, not like in a cheat way, but like figure out the true secrets to be the best bodybuilder in the world with my genetic advantage. And then he said, oh, I'm going to be an actor. And he barely spoke English. And three years later, he was like uh, selling out movie theaters. And then he was like, dude, I'm going to be the governor of California, which is equivalent to like being the president of like the seventh largest country in the, in the world in terms of GDP. And he did it in like four years. Um, and so one of my goals is to never become a dead player because you don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to give into the system to that, to that level. You can always do it. Um, so to bring this back around, if you're doing something that for me, if I'm doing something that aligns with my values and I feel I can have a non-fungible impact, if I got hit by a snowplow, tomorrow there'd be a big hole and the things that I was going to do wouldn't get done. Uh, that, that will be fulfilling for me. Yeah. So what, just, just so I have, you know, clarification and clarity on this. So yeah. What, what does a dead player mean? What is that? So a dead player is yeah, somebody that. Um, and I can give you, I want to, I want to give you Sama's, um, um, I'm going to, I'm going to share the link with you as well, yeah, but, yeah. but his distinction he says is the distinction between live and dead players matters if you're trying to predict the future of society. 
the basically the what will happen in a society is dictated by its live players without live players everything will stagnate because everyone's already working off an off an existing playbook right. dead, dead players have an existing playbook live players create a new one so in mm. basketball Don Nelson, I would say, is a live player in terms of basketball. I'm not going to mention names of guys who I think are dead players because that's going to get me in a lot of trouble. Um, but there are people who can only do the existing playbook, which will work to a certain level. But until Daryl Morey came in and said, we need to shoot a ton of threes, until Nelly came in and said, we need to play small ball and shoot more threes, right. nobody was going to do that. No one would mm-hmm. do it. So I would say Daryl's a live player for sure. Yep. I'd say Mike D'Antoni's a live player. I'd say Nelly's a live player. Um, I would say Frank Vogel is probably not a live player. And so he's going to win and achieve, but like how many things has Frank Vogel innovated? Like the David West elbow post-up changed to the Anthony Davis elbow post-up. Like right. that, that's not a live player scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that context, man. Cause I think that's, that's part of it. You know, like we get caught, man, in, just to conform to what everybody else is doing. You know, what's, what's mm-hmm. safe. And yeah, how do we get to this chance? This, I guess, this point where we can take chances and we can just put ourselves out there and and become a live player. In your opinion, not not taking chances also a chance. Like I love to love, which is a little bit stereotypically tech bro of me. But if you think about someone in a salary position, like a pure salary position, um, it seems safer than being an entrepreneur. But similar to the example I gave before. Uh, you, if one person fires you and you have a bunch of debt, like you're screwed if you're in a pure salaried position. Whereas if you are, um, if you're an entrepreneur and taking chances, you will have more rejection and less chance of success on any end, right? If we say N is one to 50, N equals 25, those might all be rejections, but you actually have more upside. But interestingly enough, you're actually safer as well because the things that we perceive as stable and safe are not stable and safe. Um, and the only way to escape that um, stasis is to take risks because, because otherwise your downside risk is just hidden. Yeah, dude. <laughs> I feel yeah. that, man. That makes sense to me. Just recognizing the perceived, the perceived like just the perception of, of what safe is. And I, the one mm. thing that I find really interesting is just like, what's actually tangible, you know? Because sometimes right. it's like, it seems like in this comfort right now, cause it's right in front of me mm. that this is safe, but because I can't yep. see down the line, totally. that's, that's the thing that messes with people. I think sometimes is it's cause I see it, it makes, you know, it makes total sense, but because I don't and it's down the line, man, I just think that's, that's another thing to play with too. You know, there's an interesting, thing that I've noticed because I'm now in kind of broadly the venture ecosystem venture capital ecosystem and and if you compare to use an example of this John if you compare a hedge fund person to a venture capitalist right so a hedge fund person is basically trying to optimize and they can kind of cheat because they have other people's money but let's say you are running just your own money investing in the stock market and we'll call that person a person b only invests in venture-backed companies right um so hypothetically, a venture-backed company, you're writing a check to a company that right now, like if it sold today, it would have zero value for the most part, or if you're writing an early check, right? Um, if you're investing in the stock market, hypothetically, that's never going to have zero value and it's safer per se, right? 
Um, but it's, it's pretty much impossible to 100X an investment in the stock market. It's, it's, it's possible in venture, although not super likely. But interestingly enough, if you invest with venture capital in good firms, even though you, you hypothetically have this risk of losing all money, you end up doing the same as the stock market. In best case, you could do 10 or 100 times better. And the reason for that is that in the stock market, if you're investing there, you, you're in kind of the, the, the safe, what's viewed as safe. But if you're investing in venture, that that perceived risk of losing all your money gives you just way, 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 way more upside. And I think that's an interesting way to look at overall decision making, which is that you want to look at it more like venture, where you're willing to take small losses much more frequently than you would invest in the stock market, but you're willing to have 10 or 100 times upside instead of capped upside at 20% per year. Um, and and if, you, if you apply that to other decisions, it's not pure optionality. Like you do have to commit to things, but you have to commit to things um, that you do believe truly have upside. I'm, I'm just interested in how you learn, because this is something that Shay does really well. And, I, and what yeah. I love that you're doing is you're actually bringing things in. And the more that I, I, I you know, I learn and I read books and I, I realize that everything is interconnected. You know, like everything oh. we do, dude, it's, it's, it's all interconnected. And the people that, like the brightest people I've ever been around, they're able just to relate things like you're doing now. So yep. what, what does your learning process look like when you, you know, just in your business life, it could be just in your personal life. Mm -hmm. Like, what does that, what does that look like? Yeah. So when it, the, the more complex of a system you deal with, the simpler rules you want as a general rule, right? So um, if, if you, if you take that and apply it to life, you want to have fairly simple rules for life. Um, whereas if you're doing something that's not as complex, you can, you can have a lot more rules. Um, because complex systems are too hard to predict um, on a one-to-one -one basis. Um, and so because of that, I do a lot of reading across, across every area. And then I also just try to put myself out there and do different things. Um, one way to look at, 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 at this is, is just to build really good mental models, which is something that's maybe been run into the ground a bit lately, but I, I think it is true. Um, and if you have a few rules, like Charlie Munger talks a lot about this, who's Warren Buffett's uh, partner at Berkshire. Taleb talks a lot about this. A lot of good investors talk about this. You do want to have good mental models. But the thing that I found as of late, which has surprised me, John, is that I think most people are, are post hoc rationalizing why they do things. So I think what you want to do is apply the mental models to kind of narrow down your options. But over time, the real goal is to hone your instinct and your gut once you have something that meets that criteria. Um, because really what that is is your brain processing things that you just can't understand. But as you, as you get more reps, your, your gut gets better. Um, and so I, I, I just read a ton and ton of books, especially old books and old novels, which I think are better than nonfiction books because they're reality distilled. And then I take that information, create decent mental models, and then I just get lots of reps so I get better at understanding how the world works innately more so than explicitly. Yeah. Going with your gut and, and, and playing off instincts. That's something else I think just through meditation, like actually just listening mm. and, and, and hearing like my inner voice, like once like totally. everything calms down, like the first 10, 15 minutes of my meditation, it's usually like, yeah, it's chaos, man. It's, it, there's all these thoughts that are running. Yeah. Um, but after I can get past 15 minutes, I start to settle in mm. and things pop up for me. Like just, and now I'm able just to, 
I don't know how to, how to word it, but just open up to the truth, mm. you know, like what's, what's really, like yeah. what's important. Um, what are the next steps? If I, if I set the intention that I'm specifically meditating on something, you know, like, mm. yeah. um, but I think what you're saying in terms of like your, you know, your instincts and your gut, man, I think that's something, again, I think that's something that some people like they get caught in the noise and the clutter and all that kind of stuff. And they aren't going with their gut. They aren't going with their instincts. Mm -hmm. I just think that's, that's another fascinating thing. And, and just, just again, for clarity, just, and to understand, like, mm -hmm. how, how do you do that? Like in terms of all this information you're taking in, you're reading, you said you're doing all these different things. How do you just, mm -hmm. how are you able just to listen, I guess, to, your gut and, and and just play off your instincts mm -hmm. and like to be clear john like my gut isn't good enough yet like i meet these you know venture capitalists or some of the people i work with and they can yeah. see this faster but i'm finding over time that it's getting better like i've had a few situations in life where i got i just trusted the wrong people right i'm from a super high trust society in iowa somebody says they're going to do something i trust that they're going to do it and over yeah. time maybe i just become a cynic i don't know um but over, over time, like, I don't know that I can say that there's this, this pure process outside of continuing to focus on taking risks that won't kill me. Um, because if you take risks that, that won't kill you, it forces you to pay a lot closer attention. And that's how you get better at, at subconsciously processing, right? Which is why I'm a big proponent, you know, in basketball for having stakes. Um, I'm all, the low expectations thing is, is fantastic in shape. And I talk about it a lot. Um, but but that's where small-sided games in basketball or situations like two-minute games with a situation, you know, there's two minutes left in the game and play six of those. Um, I do think that having high stakes heightens your sensitivity to training mistakes. Um, and it does so in a way that, that hurts your ego less because you're ultimately focused on, focused on execution at the time. Um, so for me, it's just about putting myself in high leverage situations where I have this. So to distill this all down, I put myself in high leverage decision-making situations where it directly affects me. And that forces me to be good much faster. If I don't have decision-making capabilities, I'm not learning at some level. Mm, dude. <laughs> yeah. I, the the decision-making thing I think is, is it is like getting real reps. Like what are real repetitions? Mm -hmm. Cause ultimately mm -hmm. that's going to help you grow. And I think that's it in player development. That's like in our own personal development off the floor, you know, in our own jobs. And I think mm -hmm. that's like the most important thing, man. Like if you're not growing, dude, you're just putting yourself into a rut, you know, and being around people that are growing and man, I just feel that so much. The, um, and I was going to say, some people are good at this. It, it kind of depends how you're wired, John. Some people yeah. are good at just doing like being able to incorporate things as they do them with no stakes. Um, but I do think for others, like coaching wise, I learned a ton of X's and O's from Johnny Dawkins, Brad Stevens, right? Yeah. Um, but personality management wise, I learned more in six months of coaching the Oakland Soldiers 16U than I did in five years at Butler and Stanford um, because I was in the seat. And for me, I, I do need to have some impact tied to those decisions. Yeah. Real reps, man. That's what it's about. Real reps. That's it, man. <laughs>